and I've been to Oaxaca, because one year when we were in Puebla, Tomas decided he and I were going to go to some village. He didn't know where it was, and we drove through Oaxaca, and had to ask, he had to ask people for directions to this village we ended up in. So it seemed like a pretty mellow place. She gets back the end of this week, Wednesday. So keep Angel in your prayer. She's doing some work for her, toward her medical program down in central Mexico. And then also, now if you're here Wednesday night, I got the all clear from Sharon that morning that uh, because uh, David had been in a bike wreck that would have probably sent me to uh, the hospital for three weeks, he was not going to try to run up Pike's Peak on Wednesday. He waited a day. <laughs> he decided to do it on Thursday. And uh, I will not even attempt to try to describe some of the uh, hilarity and the uh, dangers involved in doing that. <clears throat> but uh, while it's still fresh on his mind, pull him aside and he can tell you. And, and did you take any pictures along the way? <laughs> okay, it's, it's crazy. So I'm, I'm glad. It's funny, you know, Thursday night when James was in his wreck, Joe was there and uh, Ron was there and I was there fairly early on. Then we kind of switched around in the ER. But at, at some point, James looks at us and said, Hey, I want to thank you guys for being here. And I said, No, James, I want to thank you for being here. <laughs> For being here, because if you see the picture, <clears throat> a, uh, a large lawnmower which fell off a trailer that got unhitched bounced off his truck and created a big hole right where his head should be in the windshield and then peeled off the top of the truck. So that could have been catastrophic. But you know, we talk about Class A miracles and Class B miracles, and Class B miracles is when you couldn't be that lucky. You know, Class A miracle would be you fall out of an airplane and you start falling at 9.8 meters per second, and then God just supernaturally allows you to slowly drift in violation of big G, and you just walk away. That's a class A miracle. And those happen sometime according to God's will. Class B miracles, you fell out of the same airplane run, and you're falling at 9.8 meters per second, but you just happen to land on the world's largest haystack, take a couple bounces and walk away. G wasn't violated or overruled, but you walk away anyway, so... Uh, we had we had some miracles, and uh, I looked at Steve and I said, "Who's next?" You know what? Uh, you're, Lana and Tommy haven't heard me say this, and James and his wife haven't heard me say this. But you know, every Christian I know is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. So. Uh, you can never really go uh, on automatic pilot in the spiritual life for a lot of reasons, including that one. But today, we're going to complete our four-and-a-half-month study on the life of Joseph by looking at the death of Joseph in Genesis 50. And we're going to see some principles about how believers can and should deal with major life changes, and they are coming sooner or later. So buckle your seatbelt, right? But as we prepare for that, let's pray for our teachability. Uh, let's make this about the text, not the teacher. Let's make our learning for living here. This isn't just information. Let's move it from our heads to our hearts so it becomes conviction and worldview. And then also let's pray for those who protect and serve us, as you so well know. So Stan, if you would, lead us in opening prayer, okay? Thank you. We're going to see... In our passage today, that Joseph lived to the ripe old age of 110, and he saw three generations. He was a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. So with that in mind, uh, our abstract thought warmer-upper will deal with kind of grandparents, okay? Uh, why did Grandpa put wheels on Grandma's wheelchair? Because she told him she wanted to rock and roll. <laughs> That's why. Uh, Vivian, that's one of our grandchildren, to Debbie. She called, they call her Grandma and I'm Papa. Vivian to Debbie, hey Grandma, what is Papa's bedtime? Papa's bedtime. Uh, Debbie to Vivian, usually three or four hours after he falls asleep on the couch. <laughs> I have a picture. <laughs> that's me asleep on the couch and Vivian had wanted to talk to me, but she can't talk to me now because Papa is asleep, so don't bother him. He gets grumpy if you wake him up. In fact, he tends to be grumpy even before you wake him up. 
this is my favorite one. ER doc to a young man. How did your grandpa get so bruised up? Young man to ER doctor. Well, we were at the bank, and he asked me to check his balance, so I gave him a good push. <laughs> okay, we're going to finish our consideration of the Joseph saga and look at verses 15 through 26 of Genesis 50, and we're going to think about how believers should respond to major life changes, and all of us face them, right? So the passage looks like this uh, in verses 15 through 21, concerns that arise when believers, if you're a believer, put your name in the blank, concerns that arise when Carla Buchanan deals with major life changes or uh, uh, Gerilyn Harris deal with major life changes should be faced in light of God's ongoing faithfulness and his good purposes. We're going to see the aftermath first of the death of Jacob in this passage, and then we're going to see the, the death of, of Joseph. People come and go. Uh, things change. The only constant in life is change. And so we have to be prepared for that. But God doesn't change. God doesn't go anywhere, right? And that's going to be verses uh, 15 through 21, and then in verse 22 through the end of the book, recognizing that God's program is much bigger than Billy Graham means the New Testament church will continue to function even though Billy Graham has been promoted, right? And I used to use that all the time when he's still alive because people kind of say, what are we going to do when Billy Graham dies? He's the last kind of evangelical who's well-known that people can't possibly criticize because he's kind of squeaky clean. Well, I think the church will go on without Billy Graham and will certainly go on past Brad McCoy. And I think it's very important to remember. Uh, but yeah, recognizing God's program is much bigger than we are or a whole generation is should promote active anticipation for much greater things. God has designed us for much greater things, and he's going to get us there. Joseph's going to die, and his brother's going to die before he's, they see the fulfillment of the promises about the promised land. That won't happen for centuries later. God's program is bigger than Zach Skinner, and it's certainly bigger than Brad McCoy, and God has grafted us into him. We've got so much to look forward to. It ought to kind of give us perspective as we deal with the slings and arrows of right now. So let's look at verses 15 through 21. Concerns that arise when believers deal with major life changes, including people leaving us by death or other ways, should be faced in light of God's ongoing faithfulness and his good purposes. Even when bad things happen, he works all things together for good. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, let's go back a little bit, go back to the last verse of last week, verse 14. Jacob dies after talking to his boys in detail, and then they have a 70-day period of national mourning for Jacob because Jacob was the father of the prime minister, and they only had 72 days of mourning for the Pharaoh. We know that based on Egyptian history. So that was big. And then what did Jacob tell the boys before he died? Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. I'm not going to see it, but our people will see it in the future. So verse 14 says, After Joseph had buried Jacob in the promised land, 70 days of warning in Egypt, a long trip, the long way to the promised land and back home, after the dust settles and the brothers and Joseph are back in Egypt, kind of back into their routine, then verse 15 happens. When Joseph's brothers saw that Jacob was dead, and they said to themselves, what if Joseph bears a grudge to what we did to him 39 years before against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? We tried to kill him. We sold him into slavery just to make some money knowing the Egyptians were working to death. But God had other plans. What if he, he's really mad, still mad about that? And he just was nice to us because dad was around. Verse 16, so they, watch this, they don't even go to him personally, David. Now he's busy, but I think uh, they're just uh, afraid to even broach him directly. So they sent a message to him. It was a text message. Now, they were, they were slow back then. It took like five days to get there. But uh, they sent a message to uh, Joseph, who's the prime minister of Egypt, saying this, your father, not our dad, this... Listen, this sounds fishy to me, okay? I don't believe Jacob had given the other boys this message. The, are there lies in the Bible? Yeah, accurately recorded lies. Uh, I'm pretty sure, 
I could be corrected, and we'll ask the guys in heaven, uh, did your dad really say that to you, and then you sent a message to Joseph after you guys got back from the funeral, or were you just making it up just to kind of attach dad to the plea for clemency here? But anyway, they sent a message to, to Joseph, their brother. This is kind of a weird way for me to talk to my sisters. And I, hey, Brenda, you know, your father said this or that and the other. I would have said, hey, dad said this, that, and the other, right? So anyway, the message says, your father, Joseph, your father, you know, Jacob, the one you love so much, coat of many colors, charged before he died, told us before he died, thus you shall say to, thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, that transgression 39 years before of your brother, uh, brothers and their sin. Now, Joseph, just forgive it, even though I'm not there to make sure you do it anymore, for they did you wrong. Sounds like a country song, you know? Now, I was a big Beatles fan back in the day, and you played the records backward because they put little secret messages in some of the records. But when you play a country song backward, you get your truck back, you don't get a divorce, you know, all kinds of th- good things happen. So I'm just playing backwards, and it's all great. Um, please forgive the transgression. Now watch this. This is pretty good. I beg you um, for the sin they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So they're calling themselves, like, we're God's servants now, you know. And they are. They're, the, they're, they're different people than they were when they threw him in the pit. That's for sure. But again, uh, you look at the commentaries, and I do kind of at the end of the week, and a few guys say, hey, maybe this actually happened, and they're telling a correct report, but almost everybody else says, this sounds awfully fishy. I think they're making this up. And I, I agree with that for two reasons. Number one, I don't think Jacob, having lived in Egypt for 17 years, under the grace and provision of Joseph, and all the family, including the brothers, are, are being graced out, I don't think Jacob thought there was any reason to tell the other guys, hey, when when I'm dead, tell them to keep being nice to you guys. Because uh, he was convinced that uh, Jacob, uh, that Joseph had totally forgiven the guys. So I don't think he's, the dad saw any need for such a message. And if he did, Tommy, trust me, he wouldn't have told the other guys, you tell Joseph when I'm dead. He would have gone straight to Joseph, right? He always goes straight to the source. You know, that kind of helps a lot, solves a lot of problems. But I don't, I don't see that. But watch this. Then we read, and Joseph wept, verse 17, when they spoke to him. Now, listen, don't get your theology of Christmas off Christmas cards, because sometimes they're wrong, you know. The Magi uh, didn't come the night of the birth, they came a year later, stuff like that. But um, don't get all of your theology from commentaries either. The first commentary I pulled out uh, said, Joseph was weeping because of self-pity that they doubted his integrity. I don't think this guy has any self-pity. I don't think he has any bitterness. I think he's totally graced out, totally God-centered. I think he's touched by their full and continued recognition of just how evil they had been all that time, even though he'd already forgiven them. It's kind of like there's that now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The worst thing you've ever done was future when Christ died. He knew about it and paid for it anyway. And it's not like God in his, you know, he says, uh, as far as east is from the west, he removes our transgressions from us. Uh, he's not unaware of them, but he doesn't reckon them to, to us anymore. So Joseph wept because these guys really get it. They really understood how evil, how terrible what they did really was, but I forgive them anyway. And they just open and, and sincerely contrite about it. So that's actually a good thing. Joseph was a guy who lived in a no-bitterness zone. He did not hold bitterness. He was not implacable. Because he had the conviction God's the ultimate judge and the governor of the universe. And uh, he holds the strings, as S. Lewis Johnson used to say, of divine providence. And in fact, this is the way they reconciled when he first introduced himself to them when they didn't recognize him as prime minister of Egypt. Go back to chapter 45. Chapter 45 of Genesis. You know, after two trips to get food, not recognizing Joseph, this was years later, uh, after the offense, and he didn't look like a Jewish guy, he looked like an Egyptian guy, and they hadn't seen him for decades. Uh, and we read, then Joseph could not control himself before the entourage there at his house, so he makes all his employees leave the room, and Joseph was going to make himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly, just because he was so touched by this moment, everybody in the other room could hear it, 
And then Joseph said, Ani Yosef, in Hebrew. He's speaking Hebrew, not through a translator like he'd been doing, pretending to be just an Egyptian. And the first thing he says is to the guys who had sold him in slavery, he said, is dad really alive? I want to see dad again. I want to see Jacob. And God gives Joseph and Jacob 17 years in Egypt. And it's so cool, Lana, because Joseph was 17 years old when his brother sold him in slavery. And then decades later, they get together uh, and uh, they spend 17 years together. So that's pretty cool the way God made that work out. So I'm Joseph. Is dad really alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They were so dismayed. They think he's going to you know, have us executed this afternoon for what we did. And we deserve it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer, come closer. You don't have to you know, be, be afraid of me. And he said, I am your brother whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. But don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourself because you sold me here, human responsibility, but God sent me here before you to preserve life, God's sovereign purposes. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There's five years to go. God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to give you, keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not just you that made this happen. Ultimately, it's God's purposes involved. So he really believes that. Go back to chapter 50. So, you know, he's long ago forgiven these guys. He tested their character to make sure he could trust them, remember. But they were different people. And so, yeah, God does hold the strings to divine providence. Even evil events have their ultimate cause in the purposes of God, but he's not morally responsible for any evil. The Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause for all the accidents involving uh, trucks in Marlowe at about uh, 5 p.m. on Thursday where somebody didn't attach their trailer property to their truck and didn't clamp down or secure the big lawnmower on, in the trailer. And so as a result of that, James's truck got totaled and he almost had his, you know, was almost decapitated, but he wasn't, again, by God's providence. So we could, are we going to sue the Ford Motor Company for that accident? Things are so weird now that will probably happen, you know, right? But no, we realize if that Ford truck hadn't have been there, it would have been a different truck, right? But uh, God's the ultimate cause of everything. He's not the blamable cause. He has a different moral connection with evil than he has with good. So Joseph's saying, yeah, you guys did it, and you're culpable, but God had his purposes, and I have no bitterness here. I'm willing to rest in the promise of God. Now, you might say, what? How does that work? Well, you know what? The best example of this, of evil being perpetrated, and yet God trumping it and including it in his purposes, he didn't promote it, but he, he permits it, the evil aspect, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. At one level... For creatures to torture and crucify the physical human incarnation of God is the worst thing any human being could do, right? And yet, as we know, the theological, spiritual, eternal purposes of of God are such that he can both be just and the justifier, the one who believes in Jesus, because he's paid for our sins. And Peter notes this. Peter, just 53 days after the crucifixion in Jerusalem, when it's still dangerous for him to be talking about Jesus in Jerusalem, publicly says this in Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and signs and wonders, which God performed through him, God the Father performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, watch this, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that's God's providence, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, a Roman execution torture squad, and put him to death. But God raised him up again. See, Joseph can live a bitter free life because he really believes in the providence of God. That doesn't absolve the criminal of the crimes of somebody, uh, injures somebody or breaks into your house. I think you ought to prosecute him to the full extent of the law because Human government is designed to restrain and punish evil. That's what we're told. So we go along with that, but we don't personally ruin our lives by being full of bitterness because somebody didn't smile at us or something at a, at a church potluck, and these things can happen. God's the ultimate judge and the ultimate governor of the universe. He holds the strings of divine providence. Uh, and yet, within that framework, when appropriate, uh, rather than repaying evil for evil, hurting people tend to hurt people, 
we should respond with forgiveness. You know, Romans says, uh, Romans uh, twelve nineteen says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. Some people won't let you reconcile. Sometimes reconciliation isn't possible, but you can give forgiveness on your end with or without reconciliation. Joseph, I think, had forgiven the brothers before he reconciled with them in chapter 45 that we just read. He checked their character out to make sure they hadn't whacked the dad and the younger brother first. But once he realized they had changed, he was happy to forgive them. Uh, he didn't press charges, you might say. When Colossians, just starting Colossians on Wednesday night, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, let me read what the New Testament says. Uh, some of the commentators say, this guy's forgiveness is so amazing, it's like New Testament forgiveness. And I say, no, it's God's forgiveness. You know, that was possible in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But uh, in some ways, since we have clarity on the details of the first advent, it makes it easier, you might say. But Colossians three twelve through 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart, a mind and a will of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Look for things to like. Look for reasons to forgive all the time. I like what the injured war veteran said. Uh, I think his name is a Texas congressman said, I try hard not to offend and harder not to be offended. When Saturday Night Live made fun of his war injuries. And I thought, wow, that ought to be in the Bible. In fact, it is, right? Places like this, it just it's worded differently. Um, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Notice the context of Colossians. He's writing this to a Christian church, one of the smaller New Testament churches, probably less than 50 people in this church meeting in the living room on Sundays. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against each anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should forgive them, right? Beyond that, put on agape just as you interact. Um, Lana and Tommy, uh, we talk about the baptism technique around here. To get along with other Christians in this church or any church, you must use the baptism technique. When I baptize James, uh, I have the person turn sideways, hold their nose. Why do they hold their nose? Number one, so water won't go in their nose. So I have something to hold on to. And we baptize them. The baptism technique is to get along with people as mangy as Debbie McCoy and Janice Skinner and so unfriendly as Olga Pollock. To get along with people like this who are very hard to get along with, you got to hold your nose and lean whatever back, backward, just like when you get baptized, right? And that's one reason you need to be in a church that's bigger than you, mom, and the kids. Says you don't always get your way. That's part of the deal. You know, you're committed to something bigger than you are. Whether it's a mega church or a mini church, it doesn't really matter. But go back to, uh, to Genesis 50. And I love this. Genesis 50. So, uh, watch this. Your father said before he died, you know, let Joseph know that I'm begging Joseph, forgive the brothers. They're God's servants now. And don't, you know, hold a grudge and don't put the hammer on them when I'm gone. Verse 18. Then his brothers came personally, fell down before him and said, we are your servants. Does that sound familiar? How did the story start back in chapter 37? Go to chapter 37 of Genesis. How'd the story start? Dreams. Joseph had, Martin Luther King had a dream that men should not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's that's a good rule. That's not what they mean anymore by that, by the way, if you haven't noticed, which is a big problem. But watch this. Joseph's got the multicolored letter jacket. The brothers don't like him. He's obviously a favorite. That's not a good thing to do. Show favoritism to your kids, but the Bible records that accurately. So you got some issues here. But then Genesis 37.5, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him even worse than they did before. And he said, please listen to this dream. And I think he's naive enough to say, look, this dream is from God. They're going to want to know what God's going to do here. This is going to be pretty cool, even though he's at the center of it. I don't think he's trying to show off. I think he's very naive. Um, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, all of us. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, stood up. And behold, your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to me. I wonder what that means, guys. Isn't that good news? 
Then his brother said, are you, you know, the 11th of 12 brothers going to reign over us? Are you out of your mind? That cannot happen. Will not happen. We won't do that. Are you really going to rule over us? What happens? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. But it took a while. So they hid him even more for his dreams. But then, verse 9, the plot thickens. Remember that old statement? He had another dream. This time, Dad hears about it. And he related to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had another dream. You didn't like the, you didn't like the last one? Wait till you hear this. Okay? Watch this. Behold, the sun and the moon, that's mom and dad, and eleven stars, that's the brothers, were bowing down to me. He related this to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him. This is Jacob said, what is this dream you've had? What do you mean you and mom, your mom and I are going to bow down to you? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind, and it all happened literally, but it took a while, right? Let's go back to chapter 50. So yeah, they're, they're uh, coming to him. Now they've sent the message. They bow down, and they say, we are your servants. And I wonder how many of them are thinking, whoa. That's exactly what the dream said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I get it. I, I'm not bearing a grudge here. I'm not going to press charges even now that dad's gone. For am I in God's place? I believe God is sovereign. He's the governor of the universe. And I'm leaving vengeance to him. And you guys have changed anyway. So there's no need. As for you, you meant evil against me. You're right. It was horrible. Don't ever do that again. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will continue to provide for you. And your little ones. They've already been there 17 years. So he comforted them, spoke kindly. Some people will say, well, I won't, I won't hold a grudge. I'll just stop talking to that person. That's the same thing, okay? You can't do that in a family, in a church, or a community, or a neighborhood. It just doesn't work. Now, I want you to notice something. We're going to go from the first part, verses 15 through 21, concerns that believers deal with. After the death of a, a loved one or the separation, people move and this kind of stuff on you. If you're not careful, uh, should be faced in light of God's faithfulness and good purposes, right? Now we're going to move to verses 22 through 26. But here's what your Bible doesn't show you. In that tiny little space, look at, look at your Bible, whether it's on your phone or it's a physical Bible. That little space, and it's just a small space. I should, I should have taken a picture of that and put it on the PowerPoint slide. There's just a little space in my Bible between the end of verse 21 and verse 22. There's no indication that we got a major time gap. We've got a 54-year time gap between verse 21 and 22. And if you read it in context, you can figure it out. But Moses, as he writes this, doesn't expressly say, okay, now let's jump forward to the very end of the story. He just does it. This is called literary compression. And the Bible does this all the time. And people like uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins and these people that like to put Scripture down, uh, they criticize the Bible because of these kind of things. And it just shows you how they can't even read the Bible. Go to John chapter 20. This happened to be the kind of the theme verse of Super Summer. But I would say the key to the gospel of John hangs at the back door because the last chapter of the body, I know there's chapter 21, which is an epilogue, but the last chapter of the body of the book, which ends in chapter 20, the last two verses say this about the gospel of John. Watch this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Therefore, this is John, the gospel of John 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Gospel of John records seven miracles in the resurrection. There's at least 35 specific miracles that happened that are mentioned by the four gospels total, and there were hundreds of miracles referred to generally. But therefore, Jesus did a lot of other stuff and said a lot of stuff which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to be comprehensive. I'm being very selective. But these, the stuff I've included in this book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, not that it's his last name, but that he's the Savior, the Lamb of God, 
died for our sins and rose again. The Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. Uh, the, the biblical authors are very selective about what they tell you. They're not making anything up. They're not jumping over stuff to cover it up. But they have an overall purpose for which they write. And the Gospel of John is the evangelistic gospel. Ninety times, nine zero times, Betty, in that gospel we're told the terms for receiving eternal life from the Savior is believing in Christ. It's active, receptive trust. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him has everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's what we're looking forward to beyond anything on this earth, even beyond your letter jacket. I would clean out my closet, still got my letter jacket. Jamie was helping me throw stuff away. He said, you don't want to throw this away, do you? I said, of course not. Are you crazy? It's the one religious relic we have in the house. We bow down to it twice a day, morning and night. Now, I love my letter jacket. I can't wear it anymore because it's like comes up to about here. Uh, I was, I went from 5'6 to 6'1 right um, after I got my driver's license. And as a sophomore, I was the fifth guy on the golf team. We had four seniors and me. But because my score, we only scout the top four scores, because my score scattered in all the tournaments, uh, I got a letter jacket when I was just a little shrimp. And then I grew up and it became a problem. I gave it to my girlfriend when she went to Tyler Junior College to become a dental hygienist. And uh, she gave it back. <laughs> but very nicely after about a month because uh, I don't think I even had a, a jacket. And I was whining about that. But I, it, was, it was, you know, I, I forced myself to wear it uh, at Lamar for a year just to impress the girls. Even though I, I had a girlfriend in Tyler. But that was just me. you got to confess your sins up here sometimes. But yeah, uh, here's the principle. Context, and when you read the rest of this section, you can tell there's a big time gap. Not chapter and verse division is the key to Bible interpretation. Okay, The Gospel of John is the evangelistic gospel. Ninety times we're told believing in Christ is the way you receive the merits of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are basically discipleship manuals. If you look at it, they're, they're being written to believers to show you the example of the life of Christ for believers to follow, Right? But, uh, you know, we stress this a lot, but I, you know, I never saw this growing up. And I think it's important to emphasize, of course, as New Testament folks, we look back at the provided Savior and trust in Him for salvation. But the Old Testament folks were given enough information to put their faith in the promised Savior, right? Abraham uh, rejoiced to see my, na- my day in the eyes of faith, through the eyes of faith, and he was glad. So let's go to that second part. Realize we're taking a big-time jump. That's not a mistake. That's not a problem. It's just the way the biblical authors are. And here Moses jumps to the bottom line here. Look, verse 22. Recognizing God's program is much bigger than we are, you are, our whole generation is, should promote an active anticipation of much greater things in our eternal future, better than anything we've ever seen here in this world, when God will ultimately fulfill all of his promises. Now, look at verse 22. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. They don't go to the promised land during their lifetime. And centuries later, the people end up in the promised land. And Joseph lived 110 years. He was 56 when dad died. Now it's 110 years. He, he lives to be 110. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Now, according to Dr. Tom Constable, who's a very good source, he says that's a figure of speech, kind of like raining cats and dogs. What it means is Joseph was a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. Now, um, you know, uh, Homer and Pam had told me when uh, Kristen was pregnant with our first of seven grandkids. She didn't have seven at once, but uh, she had, she has three, and Candace has two sets of twins. But they kind of told me how much fun being a grandfather was. And I wasn't crazy about being a grandfather. I just didn't like that title because I'm so young and, you know, good-looking. I hate for anybody to think I'm a grandfather. Although it's funny because, like, the second semester I taught at Cameron in 2005, uh, I told a couple of weird, funny jokes at the beginning of the semester, and people were groaning. This is an 8 o'clock speech class, you know, in the morning. And I said, hey, just trying to be funny. I said, just think of me as your father, only cooler. I mean, I was just totally tongue-in-cheek. And this one girl in the front row said, my father, more like my grandfather. <laughs> I went, how old are you? 17? I did the math. Yeah, you're right. I am like your grandfather, only cooler. <laughs> Man, the truth hurts. I'm not kidding you. It's bad. 
But yeah, so that's a huge blessing. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men. Unless they're throwing balls at you and breaking your glasses and stuff, which happens in my life sometimes. But anyway, um, it's funny because in, in chapter 48, 11, Jake, J- Jacob, the dad who died, Joseph and the guy's boy, uh, uh, father, remember he said after he kind of realized, hey, we're, we're in Egypt and everything's going to work out, he said, I didn't think I'd ever see you again, much less your kids. And he's talking about how much fun it is. So, uh, you know, if I knew how much fun grandkids were, I would have had them first. But uh, that's an old joke. Now, so he saw three generations. Also, the sons of Makir, the son of Manasseh, was born on Joseph's knees, which apparently is a figure of speech, meaning he adopted him, or he was so tight with him, so close to him, it's almost like he was his own son. Um, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God isn't going anywhere. He's going to take care of you. You know, that's pretty touching. That should sound familiar. I love this. John 13. Look at John 13. John 13, Gospel of John 13 through 17 is the upper room discourse. This is the Lord Jesus Christ telling you about the engine of New Testament spirituality. He's saying, look, you guys have been following me for three years in person, in the flesh. I'm, I'm about to leave. You're not going to be able to follow me in person, but you've got to abide in me. Recognize and respond from the heart to the one who has saved you. It's a relational thing, not just focusing on rules. Religion can force you to do rules. A relationship drives true love and, and uh, true um, loving actions. But I love this. Look at uh, John thirteen thirty one. Therefore, when Joseph, and that's not what I want, is it? Yeah. Therefore, when he, Judas, had left, he's the only unbeliever. So now we're talking about just believers being talked to. He said, now he's going to go turn me in, and tomorrow I'm going to be crucified. The Son of Man is going to be glorified through the, his death and resurrection, and God the Father glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself, and he's going to do it real quick. Now watch this. Little children, he's looking at these grown men, these 11 believing apostles. I am with you just a little while longer. Tomorrow everything's going to change. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I'm going to say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And he's thinking about going back to heaven. A new, meaning a fresh commandment in light of that, I say to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. you got to use the baptism technique, though, Tommy, okay? Now, you know, I don't think it's too far of a commute for you to drive from wherever you end up in Texas here every Sunday and Wednesday, but it may be more than you want to do. So don't find another church like this one because you'll mess it up. No, I'm... Uh, <laughs> Go to a big one, go to a little one. I would say, look for a church that, that needs me as opposed to I can just be a customer consumer in. Because I think that's the way it's supposed to work anyway. But you're going to need to use the baptism technique even on, on new, new people you meet down there in Texas. Especially in Texas. Uh, right? That you love one another as I have loved you. Now, by this, all men will know that you're disciples if you can uh, write a diagram of the Bible like that. Is that how they're going to know? No, if you love one another, right? Now watch this. Simon Peter's freaking out. He said, where are you going? You know, I'm going to go and you can't come. Where are you going? Um, Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And he's talking about going back to heaven, right? So go back to X, uh, to Genesis. That kind of reminded me of that when Joseph says, uh, I'm about to die. I'm about to leave you, but don't panic because God's not going anywhere. He'll continue to take care of you. He'll bring you up from this land. And he's talking to them as representatives of the, the nation that will come out of them centuries later. He's going to, he's going to remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about a land seed blessing Messiah who's going to be the savior of the world. Um, he'll bring you out of this land in his time. And he's going to fulfill the promises he made by oath, by covenant, by contract to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those promises are the foundation for the rest of the biblical story. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. And in the future, I don't want to be permanently buried here in Egypt. I want you to take my bones to the promised land, uh, just like we do with dads. But that's going to take place under Moses and Joshua. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So, uh, yeah, notice that emphasis there. 
God is going to be with you when I'm gone. He'll continue to take care of you. And he's going to ultimately fulfill this promise, this covenant, this contract he entered in with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the Bible's a story of contracts. It's a story of covenants. Uh, in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God makes this foundational promise to humanity through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they're going to be given a, a land tract. We call it Israel, a seed that will ultimately produce the Messiah himself and will bless the whole world through them and the, the Jewish Messiah. Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. Not that you have to be a Jew to be saved. You have to be a Jew that trusts Jesus to be saved or a Gentile because of this. Now, five, 400 years later and plus, we have a conditional covenant given to the descendants physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that drives the Old Testament narrative. But we're not living in the, New, the Old Testament period, are we? We're living in the New Testament era. And the surprise ending of the Jewish, most Jewish gospel, David Stribling, Matthew, is the Jewish Messiah is, in fact, the Savior of the world. Going to all the world, not just to Israel at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So all this stuff is coming together, and Joseph is very much aware that his life is just one little piece of one little generation that is going to be a long chain of things God's going to use to produce his uh, his ultimate outcome. Now watch this. Um, I think I told Lana, you know, you get to verse 26, and it's like you got this big epic story in Genesis, and then it just stops abruptly. Joseph died at 110, and he's bombed and placed in a coffin in Egypt, even though he said, when you guys go, when the, the nation goes, take me with you and bury me in the promised land. That's the end of it. What a kind of a downer ending, right? No. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books are one big story. Flip the page, go to the next uh, book, and look what we read. It just picks up where he left off. Now, Joseph just died, but we're going to have a little overlap here. Watch this, Jeff. So Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. Now, he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob they're going to have this land track called Israel. They're not there yet. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, and it lists the brothers. And then it says, notice at the uh, end of verse 5 of Exodus 1, but Joseph was already in Egypt, you know, when they came. And you know the whole story. That's what chapter 37 through 50 is about. Then Joseph died at 110. All his brothers had a whole, whole generation, and they didn't see the fulfillment of the land promises because God's plan's bigger than any individual or any generation even. But the sons of Israel over the next centuries in Egypt were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied. It's not just 70 people. Now it's a million and a half people. Became exceedingly mighty there in Egypt, so the land was filled with them. Now, centuries later, a new pharaoh arose who didn't know anything about Joseph. He had no historical uh, perspective, and we've got a generation of people with no historical perspective. They can't tell you when the Civil War happened. They don't know that the War of 1812, other than the fact it started in 1812, was like a second American Revolution, and if we'd lost that, we probably wouldn't have existed as a country. They don't know stuff like that. They don't care, you know. Uh, but this new pharaoh, centuries later, said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than us. It's a little bit of hyperbole there. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they'll multiply, and in the event of war, they may join themselves to our enemies and be a, you know, a problem. So they appointed taskmasters. They made them slaves to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for the Pharaoh storage cities. They didn't build the pyramids. The pyramids were already up when Abraham himself visited Egypt. So that's a bromide. If you see pictures of the uh, Moses and the guys working on a pyramid, that's not true. But go back to the Genesis. The point is the story picks right up. And I think it's, it's important to realize chapter divisions, verse divisions, even book divisions, you know, are not really what drives the story. It's one concerted story from Genesis to Revelation that's important. I hope I've taught you a little bit of that over the years. Uh, people come and go. What are you going to do? Well, I think you ought to keep loving the Lord. Keep loving your family. Keep being plugged in a good local church. Find the best one you can, make it better, is what I say. Um, God will surely take care of you after I'm gone. And God's very much aware of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're one generation moving in that direction. So he said, be sure and make sure my bones end up there at the end of this thing. Now realize God's program is bigger than we are. 
And that's very important. One thing that, uh, I don't think they told me this at Dallas Seminary. I think I figured it out on my own. But, you know, uh, six and a half years in Shreveport, 31 years here. I mean, I, I just I've loved TBF. I've given my heart and soul to TBF, you know. I've loved it in the good times, loved it in the bad times. Um, the thing I'm going to say is I'm going to hold on that. But I, I do remember that Howard Hendricks told us, when you're in the pastorate, when things are going good, don't get too excited because they're never as good as it seems. Somebody's mad at something. Somebody's probably mad at you about something. They don't like the fact you spilled your Coke Zero in the auditorium or something, and they can never get over it. I don't drink it in the auditorium. It's just in my office I drink it. But anyway, when things are going good, don't get too excited. They're never as good as they seem. But this is what keeps you going. When things are going bad, don't get too bummed out because they're never as bad as they seem. But it, I figured out eventually, and I plugged this to TBF because I've, I've been here for a while, but, and I've told all the youth ministers this multiple times, including James. James is kind of like Glover, Glover Cleveland. Glover Cleveland is the only U.S. president that served non-consecutive terms. You know that? He got elected, ran again, lost, ran again, won. James was here. He, he went on the wilderness wanderings to Arkansas. And if you were the letter, here he comes back. Because God wanted him here to get in that wreck so he could, uh, yeah. You know, James has dodged carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, being decapitated, two ambulance rides within like a month of each other. And I said, James, the Lord wants you here to do something. I just hope we can figure out what it is. But anyway, here's my saying. God loves TBF more than I do. Homer and Pam love TBF. They're part of the pillars here. Debbie and Dale love TBF. But God loves TBF more than even Homer does, even more than Jan does. Even more than Pastor Brad does. And that's one thing, one thing that keeps you going. Now talking about separations, and this is hard to say, but the last six months, we've had, and the love us are here today, but we've lost as far, but Tommy lost his job, got a much better job, was got in that, of course. I'm not crazy about the location of your new job and what that demands. Of course, Tommy is now a grandparent too. Is that, is that a powerful, amazing change in your life? Which I don't look at FaceTime very often unless it's FaceTime, uh, Facebook. FaceTime I do sometimes. In fact, I accidentally called Olga when I was walking Karen's dog last week. I was walking in front of the hospital and I heard Olga talking to me in my pocket and I put my phone in my pocket and I somehow pocket FaceTimed Olga. <laughs> so there's nothing going on there. I just, uh, but, um, oh shoot, what was I saying? Help me. Huh? Yeah, Facebook. Yeah, Debbie Shelman is incredibly, that's such a cute kid. And what's his name? Brighton? Okay. He's got a, you know, he's got a beautiful grandson. And that changes things. I, I totally get that. It's like a magnet, man. You want to maximize the time there. But yeah, in the last six months, we've lost the wards. That hurts because they're all, all over the place. We lost the love base. We didn't lose them. You didn't die, but. But, you know, just by the nature of their situation, uh, they're not, can't be active. The postal weights, the postal weights came on Wednesday night and liked it. I mean, that's how crazy they were. Uh, the Foremans, the Drakes, and like somebody else. When you have like 65 families and you lose six in a short order, that's 10% of your team, man. That makes it tough. Um, I don't get up here and whine about stuff like that, so people think I don't notice it. I notice everything. Including the stuff I don't whine about. I pray about it. I don't whine about it. But, yeah, you know, God loves TBF more than uh, the wards do or did or the lovets do or did. And uh, we're not going to be the same without Tommy and Angie, but we'll be different in other ways. And we can still be good in other ways. So, you know, people come and go, and you have to be prepared for that. But I want you to notice something. Genesis ends, or it begins with Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, and they immediately blow it. But it ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. He's not even in the promised land. I mean, how could this be God's will? Well, individuals come and go. Even the greatest of God's servants, people like Joseph, you know, go the way of all life. They die. But their souls live on. And those who remain on earth after they leave were commanded just to keep loving the Lord and walking with the Lord. His purposes continue. And God has something incredible for every believer that's the book of Revelation on one sheet of paper. But ultimately, what we're looking forward to is not just the second advent of Christ. We're looking forward to a whole new universe 
in the best of all possible worlds. Middle-aged philosophers used to say, this must be the best of all possible worlds because God designed it. No, it's the best possible world achievable with creatures that make moral decisions, meaning a lot of bad moral decisions. But this is the best way to the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds isn't me visiting my grandkids for a weekend. It's new heaven and new earth. Think about it. Evil will have been permitted. Evil will have been defeated. Evil will be forever quarantined. And we'll be in a whole new universe in resurrection bodies. And it reads like this. You can't make it up. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God is going to live among us. He wants to live with us. Can you believe it? You couldn't make it up. And he'll dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more sorrow, no more pain, no reason to cry. There'll no longer be any death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. All the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne, God the Father, said, Behold, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make everything new. I'm going to bring my people into the perfect state, the eternal universe, new heaven, new earth. And he said, write, John, these are, sounds like it's too good to be true, but write all this down, for these words are dependable. And then he said to me, it is done. God is not done with his plan for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants at the end of Genesis. He's got a lot more to go. God's not done at your funeral. God won't even be done at the second advent of Christ. He won't be done during the millennium. He won't be done with his purpose for permitting all of human history until he get to, we get to Genesis 21, 22. Now, real quick, some of you have heard this. Uh, an atheistic British philosopher by the name of David Hume came up with the argument that's the most used argument to disprove, to disprove the existence of God, and here's the way it works. If God were all good, he would want to defeat evil. You say God's perfectly righteous? If God's all good, he wants to defeat evil, Right? If God was all-powerful, like you Christians say, he could defeat evil. But, look around. Is evil defeated? Of course not. Therefore, David Hume said this deductive reasoning sounds pretty tight. There can be no all-good, all-powerful God. You might have an all-good God who's not all-powerful, who just can't try quite make it happen, or an all-powerful God who's not all-good, who kind of watches our suffering and enjoys it. But you can't have both. Now, that sounds like an airtight argument and this is the way you deprogram little college kids of their Christian faith real quick. But there's a problem with that syllogism. There's a hidden time limit. This is the way you should express that. Since God is all good, he wants to defeat evil. Look at the cross. Since God is all powerful, he can defeat evil. But his purposes for permitting that aren't finished yet. But when they are, he will bring a perfect universe. He will eliminate all evil. He will exterminate it, as it were. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 says. It is done. Now watch this. Amber, God's not done yet. He's not done with you. He's not done with TBF. He's not done with the universe yet. This present universe, time-space universe. But when he's done, there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more death. That's... If you're a believer in Christ, you have that to look forward to. That's more important than your retirement party. That's more important than the next grandkid's birthday. That's more important than the next time OSU beats OU. And boy, I'm going to be happy when that happens. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on happenings. Joy is more transcendent than that. So let me say this real quick, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Joseph, the whole Joseph story is a type for Christ. And type, in that sense, means a, a prefigurement, a picture of something much greater. I won't read the diagram, but when you look at some of the things that happened to Joseph and some of the things that happened to the Lord Jesus, it's pretty obvious there are parallels there. It's the kind of thing you can see when you look back at both of them. I'm not sure that's really powerful for people in the Old Testament. They may not have realized it. Although some of the rabbis did mention that Joseph, in fact, the Messiah would be 
Messiah Ben Joseph, a suffering Messiah, kind of like Joseph. So even the Old Testament thinkers saw some of that. But I think with the New Testament in hand, you can see a lot of parallels. I think it's very interesting to notice that. But uh, an example would be like the Old Testament Passover lamb is used as a type for Christ. First uh, Corinthians says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's not really a lamb, but that was a picture. That sacrifice was a picture of what Christ would do on the cross. First Peter says, you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood like a lamb, like a Passover lamb, except it's the death of Christ that dies, where he dies and pays your sin debt and my sin debt. But let me uh, say this as we close. Really a neat passage, and although it seems like a, a kind of a thud ending in a way, it's really not. It's just getting you ready for the next book. And we're going to see in Exodus, God raises up centuries later, Moses to get them out of Egypt, and then Joshua to conquer the land, uh, and where they actually take possession of the land. So it all works out. But I think when you read these big books, you get hopefully a smaller conception of how important you are, because we're not, we're just one piece. We're an important piece, but we're not the whole plan. And my lifetime is not the whole plan, neither is yours. But in chapter uh, 50, verses 15 and t- through 21, we saw that concerns that arise when believers deal with major life changes, like the death of your parents or the death of a loved one or Tommy in the wards and the postal weights all moving away kind of thing, should be faced in light of God's ongoing faithfulness. He doesn't go away, right? This is why you got to build your battleship and not a canoe before the next big major life crisis happens because otherwise you're not going to do very well with it. And then related to that, but moving beyond that, recognizing that God's program is much bigger than just Angel getting back from Mexico or finishing her medical training and stuff. And of course you look forward to all that. I can remember uh, looking forward to finishing dental school, which didn't happen because I had heart change and a life change, major life changes. Uh, looking forward to getting out of seminary. I mean, you love it, but you want to get out and actually do the do your thing. Recognizing God's program is bigger than we are. Our whole generation should promote anticipation for something much better. Dustin, you've been built for much better. You've been designed for something much better than this fallen world. Now, you've got a beautiful wife, beautiful little girls. Uh, you're in relatively good physical shape. I mean, I think yeah, I'll just start working out myself. But uh, youth is wasted on the young. Um, but Dustin's a great guy. But we got so much to look forward to. So cheer up. And uh, Lord willing, barring any more major accidents involved, I'm not going to Kitty Land anymore or tomorrow anymore, just so you'll know. There's, there's too dangerous. Let's stay here. But uh, we're going to start a series called Snapshots of the Life of Christ. And we'll look at some uh, passages that we didn't cover in the overall Life of Christ A through Z we did last year, or I guess earlier this year. And just kind of look at some things. We're going to look at the dangers of religion next week based on Luke 18. So you can read ahead. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to uh, not panic or lock up when major life changes hit us. Because you're a lot bigger than that. And uh, although things change and people change in their stations in life, sometimes leave this life. Uh, traumatically or unexpectedly. You don't leave us. You're going to never leave us nor forsake us. And you certainly show that to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and you show it to, to your New Testament church. And I pray that we lock that down for us as individuals to be ready for the next big life change that hits us. And also help us remember that your purposes are much bigger than any of us as individuals, than certainly our local church, than the United States of America or even this whole generation. You've got a huge plan. It's beautiful in its own way. Some of the facets are dark, but they all work together according to your good pleasure. And we have so much to look forward to. Uh, Forgive us for not really reading Revelation 21 and 22 enough. I guess if we got too locked down on that, it might be hard to get our feet on the ground. But for most of us, we need to be more aware of that, more consciously motivated but, but all we've got to look forward to, even as we deal with the harsh realities and the routine and the ups and downs of life now. I pray that you might uh, minister this truth deep into our souls, might change our perspective. If there's anybody here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, open their eyes to see their need. We've all sinned and come short. Our inability by the works of the law, no one can be justified in God's sight. But because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. 
you made Christ, who knew no sin, to be a sin offering for us. Open their eyes to see and believe. And for the rest of us as believers, help us to take this truth, information, I should say, from the Bible, make it transforming truth in our in the depth of our hearts, we pray. And we pray you'd be glorified in the process of that and in the product of that as we face uh, new challenges this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.